you got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, and this is the Everyday Sniper. Today, we got a special guest. Phil Vallejo is on the line. He shot the Sniper's Hide Cup. Him and his teammate, Bo, came in second place overall in the team division. So I wanted to get Phil's perspective on shooting the match because me, RO, and I only got to see one stage. I did get to see every competitor, but I did not get to see the other stages that set up. I basically dropped steel with Carl and had no clue what it looked like from the other side. So, hey, Phil, thanks for calling in. I know you've been super busy traveling, summer, training, all that stuff, but I appreciate you calling in. Yeah, Frank, no, and thanks for this opportunity. Um, you know, first and foremost, uh, great match. Uh, to, to uh, You know, my hat's off to you and Carl for putting on a, on a fantastic team match. Um, you know, matches like that really uh, excite me because, it, it. you know, I would say – there was nothing out of the realm that I shot this past weekend that wasn't practical in either a, a sniper or a hunter scenario. Um, so, I mean, it really kind of just, it, it remotivated me to, to get out to, I mean, shoot more matches like, you know, the RTC challenge, you know, and the kind of types of shoots that Clint Sharp and, and Carl Taylor put it on. It, it, was, Northwest up it was Clint's idea with the, um, the, he does with Karstetter, which is like a, a, a charity match for him, but he does that individual and the teams together, and he suggested to me, he's like, hey, you know, we do it this way, and I'm like, well, I've never done it like that, but I'm open to try, so I think it was pretty successful to have both individual shooting alongside teams, but, I mean, it was definitely a different dynamic when you see an, an individual attack a stage, and then you see the team attack the stage. To me, it, it definitely highlighted the difference of how teamwork helps, not only from a time standpoint, but from getting the objectives done, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, when anyone that's shot a team match knows that it's not about how well both individual shooters shoot, I mean, it's all about communication. It's all about uh, the chemistry between both shooters and, and pretty much how both the shooters kind of feed off each other, right? Um, you know, obviously it has to do with, you know, the capabilities of the shooters at that point, but because, uh, you know, Kadarzi and Adam, I mean, both of them are great shooters, good dudes, and they've been, you know, paired up as a team, I think, for the last couple of years now. And I, I think they're just dominating this year, right? So they're the, they're the ones that took first uh, at your match. But, you know, I know that they've been working together for a while. Uh, you know, I think the two or three years now as a team, and it shows, right, when they go to these matches and they do well. So um, I think I mentioned to you later that night, they, they, they look like they move in slow motion. You're, you're, you're expecting them to time out, but they're so well choreographed. They're so well thought out that you just watch them in motion and you're like, man, they're going to run out of time. And, and then it's just like, bing, 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 and they're done. And, you know, they, they get a really good high score. And I mentioned uh, the other day in the podcast, they weren't the highest shooters on my stage. And, you know, there, was, there were several teams that outshot them. But, man, they were still up there really high, but, you know, smooth as silk. So it, it, it's easy to see how they're dominating because their flow is just so smooth. Yeah. So 
I shot with Nick Kadarzi. First time I ever shot with him or squatted with him just individual an individual match was the uh, National Rifle League Championship back in 2018. And then I thought I thought the same exact thing when I I watched him shoot each stage. I was like, man, you're, this guy's gonna time out. <laughs> and Nick, you know, just like you know, clicks off that last shot impact and then time right. Um, so th- that to me is just I, I think just using. Or it's good time management, using yes. all of your allotted time, right, uh, to be able to still accomplish the mission, right? Because, you know, it's not about how fast you are, right, in the uh, precision rifle uh, shooting sport. It's about how accurate you are. Um, so, you know, that 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 is definitely, and, you know, I, I watch Adam shoot all the time uh, as well, and, and he's, you know, very slow and methodical, and, and both of them together is, is pretty awesome. One thing... Uh, that I want to ask you, um, and then I'll, I'll kind of you know debrief on my side of the house and what I saw with the the whole st- the whole match. But what did you see that made teams successful at your stage? All right, let's let's talk about your stage first. Um, how your stage kind of rolled out and, and where your target setup was at. I thought you had one of the best as far as venues, right? As far as background scenery. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The best for sure. But. Go ahead. Yeah, so I explained this in, in in the other podcast for guys who who were listening to the one before. But if you're basically looking at my first target is at twelve o'clock, then your second target is at about ten o'clock, and then your third target is directly at nine o'clock. So you had to swing a pretty a pretty big far arc from target one, which is through the trees, through the loophole. It was at the bottom of the V in the trees. And then you had to come out to a target in the open, which, as I had mentioned, the one through the trees was a 66 percenter. The one in the open was a full size. And then the one at 90 degrees was a full size, partially obscured by the weeds. So the weeds were up to it about halfway. So you really only had like a, um, you know, center of the target up view of it. But it was a full target there. And. It, the, the, the problem that tripped people up the most with my stage was the first shot because the window in your positioning had to be so tight and it was so small. But once you got that first target engaged, you, you then were able to spread out a little bit and transition and shoot alongside each other for target two and target three. What I noticed were... People were trying to put both guys in that small window instead of sharing a tripod for the first shot and then transitioning to their second tripod pre-staged either sitting or kneeling and working it that way. So what you found were guys trying to put both tripods up together and you could, you know, if you overlap the legs a little bit, you could get both in the position but your shoulder to shoulder now then you had to coordinate your movement to go to the other targets and this is where guys got tripped up they tangled into each other and they didn't open up the the position and transition like some of them if they were a newer shooter i explained they didn't have to you know worry about the stake and they can turn as one you know, kind of to put your rifles on each side of each other rather than almost in line together. And we did see a little bit of that where guys would almost be turning into each other and not giving themselves space. But what it was was the guys that were successful set up one tripod 
they shared it. And as one was doing one thing, whether shooting or ranging, the other was doing the opposite. So if one guy was shooting, the other guy ranged. And where I saw slowdowns were ranging, I saw guys use as much as two minutes to get the range for three targets and then kind of um, fumble over their data because then it was a decision of target range versus target dope. And then from there, it was the coordination of movement because you can turn slightly for the first target, but you can't turn to the third target without, or for the second target rather. So you could turn slightly together for the second target, but if you tried to make that same movement to the third, you then crossed into each other. And so that messed people up. And then not knowing what position they were going to use for the second or third target. Where sitting and kneeling were the two most obvious. There were some guys who tried to get away with prone and, and, and a few did. But it was like the window for prone was so small. If you were six inches forward or back, left or right, you'd miss it. So it was tough, you know, for them to find the sweet spot. And then bipods matter where like uh, Nick and Adam actually shot it prone, but they had the leg extensions on the, um, the sky pod. So they had a sky pod with longer legs. And so they were able to transition that way versus most of the people who were using a, a, a tripod for sitting or kneeling. If they had any other bipod, Prone was really, really hard, if not impossible. So from my perspective, it was guys who communicated with each other, who understood each other's rifle and dope. So uh, I, I had said the SIG system seemed to work best for guys when it gave them data and when guys were sharing data really close. Even one team who did really well, the guy would range the target and say with the SIG laser, you know, oh, you need 3.5 mil. It's 3.5 mils for target one. You need 3.4. Okay, it's, um, you know, 3.2 for target two. You need 3.1. And they, were, they, they, they knew each other's data, and one person was able to communicate that versus a guy who just said 680, 640, 680, you know, figure out your dope. Then there was people who were trying to look up their dope, run it through a Kestrel, or do something mechanical or manual that slowed them down. But, I mean, we saw everything from guys, like I said, using two minutes just to range the targets to guys who got tangled up in each other, um, you know, trying to move tripods around or to occupy the same space at the same time with two people. You know, so to me, that was the way that I saw that that stage, um, you know, work uh, as far as the, the 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 success versus the failures. You know, so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, um, especially with the position. So I mean, you think your first target through that loophole was about six seventy five, six eighty, right? Um, yeah, you know, six seventy five would have done it. You know, 66% upstick from the standing position. I mean, I, I, I would still think that that was a pretty tough shot, especially if you when you start getting about a 10-mile-an-hour winds in there. Um, thankfully, we, we had some pretty light winds. Um, I ended up holding uh, straight up. You know, so the way Bennett, uh, Bo and I talked about executing it was knowing that that first position we shot standing, but we were just going to share one tripod so that one other person would spot. 
um, and, and lays. Uh, so, you know, um, he shot and I shot. And, you know, what was, was nice about Bo is, uh, you know, Bo is very honest with his um, assessment of his, uh, of his ability. And, um, you know, we didn't do as well as on your stage as we wanted to. But after we debriefed, you know, we talked like, hey, you know, let's let's switch it up to where I'll shoot first. Because, you know, uh, while him and I were, I was a little bit more confident in, in his ability of shooting off the tripod. Uh, so when he would make his presses, I would try to give him a correction. Uh, and then he ended up shooting that correction, if that made sense for, for wind. Um, and then, you know, he, he was just like, hey, man, I think that's all shooter error. Because uh, when I would go and I, I'd shoot, I'd shoot set, uh, center up and I'd, I'd hit. Um, but, uh, you know, being mature like that, in that sense, it was, it was easy to get along with, with Bo and, uh, you know, real quick background on Bo and I, him and I actually worked together at sniper school, uh, as, as the marksmanship instructors, um, we never shot together in, in this kind of dynamic as the shooter spotter role. Um, but we relied heavily on obviously our, 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 like our similar training, uh, to just be able to feed off each other and it, and it helped, um, because, uh, you know, I think three or four months ago, he gave me a call because uh, he's still in. He's still in. And he was like, hey, man, uh, do you want to shoot the sniper side? Come with me. I was like, yeah, sure. Anyways, uh, so during your stage, uh, we knew that from the standing, we wanted to transition to the kneeling uh, because the sitting was a little too low to, to still clear the veg. So it was like, all right, we're going to transition to kneeling. I'm comfortable with the kneeling out, out to about 800 yards, especially on a 66% IPSC. Um, because I'm a firm believer in why stand when you can kneel while kneel when you can sit, why sit when you can prone. Right. right? Just, uh, especially if you understand your gear and equipment, you can easily deploy the tripod from one position to another. Right. Um, and not have to worry about, uh, you know, not have to worry about, uh, you know, uh, jumbling around with your, right, with your gear. Right. So, and I like the um, kneeling for speed. You know what I mean? In a comp situation, yeah. I don't see a big difference because of the way we support that firing elbow. I don't yep. see a big difference between a kneeling shot off a tripod and a sitting shot, except the time to get in and out of the position. So, I agree. yeah. I agree. So to me, that was like a big thing was trying to get people, hey, take the kneeling. Because it, it's it's definitely quicker and doable, and you get a little bit more flexibility and movement to um to you know kind of shift your position a little quicker and easier. So um that was my recommendation to people. But yeah, you guys, I think if I remember right, you shot a twenty eight on that, and yeah. the highest was a thirty five. Nick and Adam shot a thirty. And the first day average, because we had worse wins on the first day. The first day, we actually got a 35 early in the morning. Um, the MDT guys, uh, uh, Girani, uh, his team, he shot a 35. Well, he's one of the MDT shooters. And then the, it, it, the wins came up in the afternoon pretty heavy for those guys. So the average score for my stage on day one was like a 19. And then um, on day two, that average went up to about a 25. And you guys shot a 28. Nick shot a, a 30. And then we had one other team shot a 35 on the second day in the afternoon. Um, I don't remember who which team it was, but it was kind of a sleeper team, you know, who shot a 35 on mine. They dropped one point, and, and it just didn't – I just don't recall off the top of my head 
who it was. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, I think the, the, the communication and, and being able to be on the same page with each other really helped. Yeah, you know, from a from a training perspective, so good good training takeaways from from your stage was like kind of like you talked about was because of how big your fan was, you couldn't get away with just kind of rolling that tripod and your shoulders across. You know what I mean? You literally had to pick that tripod up and move that leg toward the target. Okay, um, because you know some guys I, I saw some guys in front of me they shot off um, clipped in. Right, and then uh, Bo and I actually shot off uh, a, a tack table with a bag because since we were sharing a tripod, it was just going to be easier for us to transition in and out of that rather than clipping in uh, to the to the even though we both of us had Arca clipping into the Arca, um, and actually found a lot more stability using a, a, a tack table and, and a bag up front uh, because I think of that uh, increased surface area contact uh, along the rifle. And I saw that what a couple guys did that, especially when they were sharing and, and there were a couple guys that didn't have the same kind of attachment point. I did see the bags work out. I almost want to say Steve Lemieux, who shot it as an individual and was the highest scorer on my stage as an individual and shot it by himself. I almost want to say he had a bag on top of his tripod as well. I don't remember completely, but I know... He just transitioned it and, and moved the tripod in the standing and did the whole thing standing and made it under time and made it uh, the highest score of any individual because individuals on my stage timed out quite a bit. Uh, they were trying to move too much. So, um, yeah, I think that the bag was actually a very good choice uh, for uh, time management and efficiency and there's a comfort level with the bags. So, you know, that, that, that was not something that was foreign to, you know, for what I saw, it did work for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I would say that at, for the whole match, I think I shot, I want to say 85 to 90% off a tripod, right. Just because of the vegetation didn't allow you to get in the prone. I, I think that you know, there was a, a, a few flat areas where we got prone, obviously the long range stage with the thousand yard and 1550. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I was sitting and up from a tripod and, uh, you know, this is a, a shameless, uh, not even a shameless plug, but this is a good plug for really right stuff. Um, I had two of their tripods, uh, a TVC 34, um, and a, a TFC T 33 with the anvil 30. Uh, and I mean, it made a world of a di difference. And I, I was telling Bo, I was like, man, for the first time, Bo and I didn't have to do more with less. You know what I mean? Yes. Because I mean, in the, in the Marine Corps, we had those Bushnell tripods, and God, those were terrible. <laughs> um, and and you know, we were able to you know take our capabilities and use the equipment that we had, uh, you know, to it's essentially uh, potential. Um, and, and that helped. So having a good tripod helped, uh, this past weekend, um, is, you know, as much as, you know, we don't want to say stuff like this is a gear race, right. I, I think it was definitely beneficial to have good equipment out there. Right. Um, cause I ran uh, a Terrapin X as well. And, uh, I had the tear, I had a very similar combo that you have as an instructor, right. With a range finder and a, a, a spotter scope or spotting scopes combo. Um, 
because one thing that Bo and I did throughout uh, each event was we measured the width of the targets to, to see how much wind we had to play with as far as left to right. Um, so that we knew that, all right, if that target's like eight, and I do this even in my individual comps, if that target's eight tits wide and I miss just barely off the left edge, right, I need to at least come four tenths minimum over on my wind call. Yeah, your right? error budget um, for sure. Exactly. So, you know, that, that helped out a lot. Um, and then just being able to spot for each other. I, I saw a couple teams in front and behind me. Uh, they, they were trying to spot through glass and stuff like that. And that's, t- or it's spot through their own rifles. And that's tough. You know what I mean? Um, you know, in the environment that we were at, you know, shooting from, you know, a, an open area, especially on, on, on that uh, A side, like on your side, shooting in from an open area to a, a very dense, uh, heavily wooded area. Like you need to be able to see that vapor trail. Cause that, I mean, that round just gets washed up by those leaves right off the tree. <laughs> yes, big time. And, and it's tough, man. We had a lot of guys, and a lot of guys tried to walk their rounds in and dump their first two rounds because they did that edge of plate hold. And, you know, we had as much on the first day in the afternoon, 1.2 mil wind hold for most guys with like 6.5 variants. And they immediately went to edge of plate. They were, you know, more than you know, half a mil off the target. And then their correction was like, you know, 0.5. And then they'd hit just off the left edge of the target again, or the right edge, actually. They'd hit just off the right edge and miss again. Then the third shot they'd finally hit because they weren't understanding how big the target was, where their error budget was, and their corrections were far too small. And so they, they ended up walking them in versus just seeing the splash, making the bold correction and getting the hit. Oh yeah. And, and I think just shooters in general struggle with that, right. Is not convincing themselves to make a bold enough correction. Cause I know I've done it a couple of times where it's like, I miss off the right edge on like, let's say a three tenths hold. And I'd be like, Oh, well, instead of three tenths, it's two, four tenths. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, knowing better. Right. Especially as an instructor, we're preaching that like, Hey, you know, if you miss off the right, you need at least come three or four tenths or, you know, uh, for me, I teach a lot of minutes cause that's what, uh, uh, we sell here at Gunworks. So it's like, Hey, if you're, you know, if your target's two minutes wide, you miss off the right edge, you know, you need to at least come a minute over and, you know, those guys just kind of walk, like you said, walk it in. Um, and, but they just still miss off the, off the same side. But yeah, I, I think, uh, on, on your knoll or what would you got? Was that, they call it the A side. Yeah. Uh, the A side. Really, what really mixed that up too was the pistol stages. So there was a pistol stage, every other stage, which was super awesome. Each, uh, each shooter got to shoot, um, a 12 pistol rounds at a target, you know, it was and two max, you had that. to do a reload, right? So six yeah, and six. Yeah, Yep, you were forced to do a reload, and they were strict about that, right? So if you shot off an extra round or whatever, I mean, they deadlined you, uh, and you zero that stage uh, for those uh, pistol points. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I dropped, like, my first three pistol shots of the morning and then cleaned the rest. But still, um, I- I'm glad I didn't lose that. We didn't lose to Nick Gadarzi and Adam Cloninger by three points. But, uh, you know, that, that pistol definitely kept it interesting, uh, you know, because at that point, I, you know, because I'm not as, as savvy as pistols as, as, as I want to be or as, a, as my pistol, but I knew that if I took my time on pistol, I could make up time with my 
uh, long gun, right? Because I'm pretty quick on the on the bolt gun. But you know, for other shooters that are looking to get into comps like that, you know, you, you obviously it, the reason those are in there is to understand your time management at that point, right? Because you go from shooting pistol now you got to go back to your task of shooter spotter, you know, ranging the target, finding a shoot, uh, suitable shooting position, um, and then now fitting that time. Uh, your whatever time you have left over after shooting a pistol into your priorities of work you know what i mean so it causes some stress i can see it causing a little bit of stress for some shooters that aren't and it gets know, them nervous savvy. when they don't practice it you know what i mean they have jitters exactly. even before they go into it and i just want to go back once one kind of segment really quick with uh the win uh a great explanation when i was at the precision rifle expo last year Emil yep. Praslik was right next to me. He's a Team AB shooter, uh, Army Marksmanship Unit. He was kind of the win guy for their Palma F-Class team. And he put on a little win clinic next to me. And he had this, he was explaining something in, in, I when like if my class was done, I'd walk over and watch his. If his was done, he'd kind of eavesdrop on mine and because we were right next to each other. And what he did is he drew like a square target on the board and he drew a line down the center. Okay, so he had a left side and right side. He called sort of the, like for us, it would, the wind was coming from the left. So that left side was the pro side and the right side was the amateur side. So basically when you look at a target and you see that pattern in the group from the wind, you know, they're all concentrated on one side or the other because the wind blows them just slightly off center. He was saying with your corrections, if you're hitting on that upwind side, you're on the pro side. And if you're downwind, it's the amateur side. And I think that's, and I've mentioned that in class a bunch. I think that's a good way to help explain to the students. And we see it with the mile high class because we have so much wind out here ourselves. And we've, we've had really good luck with our wind stuff. Um, that putting that thought in their head really pushes them to make the correction to the left of center instead of the edge of plate. Because most guys kind of, you know, like you were thinking, well, I, I held three tenths and, and was missed, so I'll just hold four. Well, it, it, it's like if you kind of say, I want to be left of center, it, it forces that brain to go, well, left of center is five tenths, not four, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think that's a, a helpful little kind of, you know, behind the scenes key on how to look at that wind call and how to force yourself a little bit further on that left to center side when the wind's coming from the left. Oh yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great, you know, that's a great example, especially, you know, if you're paying attention to the people that are shooting in front of you, um, or behind you, whether it be a team match or, a uh, a, a, a team match or an individual match, but, you know, for the most part, when people are missing, they're they're just missing right off the edge. It's yep. not like it, it's very rare that you see guys, unless they're holding the wrong direction or they really completely miscalculated the wind, missing you know five or six tenths off the target. Yep. yep. Um, so you know you you got to take that and realize, okay, well him and I have the same wind call. He probably used six tenths, so it's a, probably a lot. You know, if he hits the right edge or the edge of the target, you know, he probably underestimated his wind call. So in that case, I would. You know, I usually like, uh, I'm probably going to start bold. You know what I mean? Uh, cause I would rather miss 
I mean, I wouldn't rather miss off any side, but you know, if anything, I would rather miss off the pro side than the amateur side. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So what, what stage gave you guys the the hardest time? What do you feel was like a stage? uh, And I don't know all of them out there. Like I said, I, I, I set a bunch of steel, but I never looked on the other side to see where we were setting it up to. What stage gave you guys sort of your your least uh, um your your lowest score? Uh, the movers, uh, both mover stages on both days. <clears throat> um, I think I was a little overconfident with my mover ability. I shoot a lot of movers out here. My my buddy out here actually makes movers in in Cody, Wyoming. Uh, he's a um, uh, awesome awesome fabricator, uh, Pete Knife. He was he was the guy that uh, we we shot his mover at my match at Monster Lake. So those were his movers. But um, so I shoot a lot of movers out here. Bo um, wasn't very savvy on movers, uh, so he was still trying to determine whether he wanted to hold from center or or edge. And um, I'm already convinced on the center hole. Yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, it was three years ago, four years ago now, 2015. Um, the the military did a J sniping program hosted by uh, Quantico. And we did a series of tests of holding edge hold, center hold on those marathon targets. Are you familiar with those marathon targets? Are those uh, the ones with the shoulders cut off or are they something different? Those are the, like the robotic targets. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, like yep, that. yep. I know which one you yep. mean. So, you know, when we got there at this J Sniper uh, mover, uh, uh, you know, package, you know, they assigned us based off of the testing. Hey, this is what lead you're going to hold. You're going to do a, a lead edge hold with a uh, ambush technique or you're going to do a center hold with a tracking technique. So you're, you're just, your focus was applying those two techniques. You know, um, the only, I guess the only skew or subjectivity to the, uh, to the, um, to the testing was the shooter capability. But overall what they found the most effective uh, engagement technique was holding from center uh, of, of your lead. And um, I think it was uh doing it, uh, tracking uh, up to a certain distance and then past the distance, it was better to ambush. So like if your distance is really close because your field of view is very limited, right, to do a tracking plus center hold. And then it, once you, it passes like 400 yards because your field of view is so wide, right, you would utilize a ambush technique or whatever the trapping, uh, I think people call. But uh, anyways, I, I think the movers gave Bo and I the hardest time. I think we dropped the most points uh, on movers um, what helped, like you talked about, was him, Bo and I being having this same exact bullet that we're shooting in roughly about the same exact muzzle velocity. I think he was just um, shorter, uh, um, like 15 to 20 feet per second. So we didn't see the difference until about 800 yards. So everything 800 yards and in, him and I were running the same dope and same wind call. Nice. So that helped. Um, and then, you know, I've gotten questions so far on, on my uh, on feed about we're doing it uh because i think they talk they listen to your podcast about the sig kilo uh, but bo and i ran strictly hard data um have you noticed with your terrapin x when you connect when you have that bluetooth connectivity it just kills your battery yeah for sure uh when the bluetooth definitely kills the battery quicker um on any of it yep for for darn sure i find that and what i found is any traveling with the terrapin the battery's yep. got to come out, and you, you got to basically in every morning put a new battery in it just for safety, because that that single button, and because it's raised and not like the old Vectronics, the other ones that we use the, that have the flat, they get pushed a lot, even like when we're not expecting it. 
So there's always yeah. some kind of actuation going on. And okay. then it does ping both units are trying to reestablish communication all the time, which I think kills the batteries quicker. Yeah, that you know, makes sense. Right, because they're always talking to each other like, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Are you still there? Yep, I'm yeah. still there. And and so, it's, you know, that's where I saw that the negativity on the battery. It's like your phone when you're not on airplane mode and it's consistent. It's constantly looking for service. Yes, totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I learned that. I learned that a few years ago, but I definitely learned the hard way on that. Um, but yeah, no, you know, I, I, I'm a huge uh, believer in, in hard data. Uh, I, I think once we establish the elevation, um, you know, we just use a median. Because a lot of people overthink DA, right? They're like, oh, there's a change of 500 or 1,000 DA. I need, a, I need a new dope card. Yeah, and it's like, like 0.1. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, homeboy, you're not missing because DA change 1500 yards or yeah 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 feet. you know uh so you know just for those guys that are listening and i run one da card and I, what i do is i run a median yep. you know so yep. let's say that the high is going to be uh you know 70 degrees and the low is 50 i'll run a 60 right and uh another thing that i do is if if it's the low range stage which usually if you go to a match that's how they kind of lay it out right just one dedicated long range stage um, I'll actually pull real, uh, real-time atmospherics for that know, for my Kestrel. Yeah, for that, um, you know, because in, in realistically, right? And I tell my hunter this all the time: if you're taking a thousand-yard shot, I mean, it's not one of those you pop out of the bush and you start, you know, swinging away. It's like, no, you're observing for at least fifteen to thirty minutes what the wind's doing, you know, atmospherics. Like, I, 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 I hear this all the time, and I'm sure you hear it all too. Well, well what if? <laughs> You know, what if he comes out of the bush? When I was like, man, if you're a thousand yards away from your animal, more times than not, he's probably not going to know you're there. Right. The right. distance gives you time and opportunity. Exactly. So you take know, that time and opportunity to gather the information, right? Um, and, and be athlete, you know, be deliberate in your approach to making your firing solution, not just like, oh, he's there at that thousand. Let's get down and let's shoot him as fast as we can. No, that's not how that works in, the, in either application, right, of, of sniping or uh, or uh, hunting. So, yeah, you know, so I, I ran – Bill Bo and I ran strictly off the DA card. He did have the six kilo binos, um, but, uh, you know, because my, my setup was already there. Um, and, and just because I was just trying to capture video and content, uh, you know, for Carl and, and, and for, you know, really for training, uh, I actually had a phone scope set up on my uh, Swarovski SCR-80. So that was cool. So, you know, I got some videos with Bo and I kind of doing, you know, how we're doing, uh, you know, shooting wise and then kind of the phone scope action, kind of see our vapor trail and, you know, where our misses were and whatever the case is. Have you actually used that for um, for training for you guys, uh, Frank, for your for your classes? I, the, the I tried scope? it. Mine. I have to get a new one. I, I do have it for through the uh, for the spotter. I don't have it for the rifle anymore. I have the yeah. phone scope to use the GoPro on my spotter. Yeah, and so I have used that one. I just haven't gone completely full blown into like this is what I'm looking at now. You can see, and I can plug that stuff into my projector and everything. I have the adapters from HDMI to all these different devices we're using, but I haven't gone back into the classroom because most of my classes are pretty short time wise, you know, two yeah. to three days. So it's not like all right, let me show you this and then let's go back. It's it's more of like on the line and shooting. 
but I do, yeah. I need to do more. I need to get a new phone scope. I had the Tory Pines unit and it just never stayed right or worked correctly for me. And it's in like four parts right now, sitting in a box. So phone scope seems to be the best case scenario. Uh, but I've only used it through my spotting scope and lined up over a shooter. And you could see the trace and you could see what's going on. I haven't done it where they can see me making the shot. I haven't gone that direction yet. But the other thing, like you were talking about your data, I found that um, just listening and watching everybody, 25-yard increments on an arm bar is really all you need. Yep. Uh, you know, that was that 680, put your 675 on there, you know you're good to go. And it was it was like 680, 641, and like 683, I think, were the exact ranges on my target. So it's like, okay, put 675, 650, and 675 on the gun, and you're going to hit it because think about how tall those targets are, with especially the two full-size zip six. They're, yep. they're like almost, you know, Three minute tall, you'd have to miss by quite a bit. Um, you know that's that's a that's a wide measure. That's almost you know 0.7 mil of error you can have, and you're only going to be a tenth or two off. So you know that's where guys will be like, "Oh, I was a tenth off." Yeah, tenth off on a full size zip stick or even a sixty six is not going to make you miss. You oh know, yeah, you yeah. know you didn't miss you didn't miss because of da right. Yeah, you missed because of sh- you missed because of shooter error. And, you know, we saw this, and in, in, we can kind of talk about this maybe going back in time a little bit, and, and this is a good thing of where people were messing up that I saw big time at rifles only. Remember that yep. stage? I think it was the table stage when we're under that table. Yep. And um, that the target was like 350 or something to that effect, and yep. a lot of people, well, their their dope was right, but they weren't catching the splash because they weren't really recovering from recoil in time, and they weren't catching their splash till the dirt was, you know, lifted by the wind and the impact above the target. So a lot of times guys call the wrong spot because they're catching the dirt puff later. And it's milliseconds later, but I saw a lot of guys go, Oh, I missed that target high. I missed that target high. I'm like, no, you really didn't. You just dug the hole in the dirt and it threw it high. But you were just off the left because if you remember on that stage at rifles only, the wind picked up pretty strong. And even on a 350-yard target, I know for me, and I did really well on that stage, you know, one of the only ones I did well on, um, I had .3 of wind dialed on. And these guys were just holding center of the plate, and it was a smaller plate. It was short, so nobody expected any wind at all. And it was a 300-yard target for me with X amount of wind. I put .3 on to match 300 to 300 yards and had a, a, a better hit percentage than guys who were missing off the right and then seeing the dirt, what they thought was high, and then they started walking around the target trying to find it. So um, that was something that I think I noticed quite a bit. You just—it's funny. You just brought me back to my my time at sniper school as an instructor, and uh, I just have to say this because you know, hopefully, um, some of my students or future uh, future you know aspiring scout snipers are listening. 
So for, for known distance qual, it's the same as probably when you went through cyber school, you shot at 300, 500, 600 on paper, yep. right? Full echo silhouette, yep. 20 by 40s. And, you know, and, and I know that when people get dropped from cyber school or whatever the case is, they're like, oh, I had a shitty spotter, right? It's like, and if you miss at three, five or 600, that's not your spotter's problem, right? Right. Because like the wind has to be blowing <laughs> at least your your wind call has to be off with with a 20 inch wide target at least seven to eight, ten miles an hour right for you to miss off those off off windage wise you know if you miss at three five or six that's all shooter error but yeah no um i'm i'm glad you brought that point up is uh, of understanding you know the amount of time it takes people to uh recover from recoil and uh i'm, I'm glad um, I was actually just talking to my student today about understanding follow through and how it assists the shooter in the recovery process. Right. Because a lot of times, you know, you hear people say, oh, well, you know, the bullets already left the muzzle. OK, I get it. <laughs> right. It happens so fast. But the reason why you want to follow through is is not only because you don't want anything to move, because as soon as that as soon as your body receives that recoil, I mean, even if you don't blink, your brain slightly shuts down. Yeah, blacks out, whites second. out, something. It, it, exactly, right? Exactly. So because it's it's naturally protecting itself from whatever just happened, that concussion. So when you freeze everything, you are you are now allowing yourself to just look through your scope to get the information of what you see downrange, Right. The second that you start to move, like take your face off the gun, flick your booger, wherever the case is, now you're occupying your brain with all those other things versus what? Looking through your scope, which mm -hmm. is what you should be doing. You need to receive that information. So when you're following through, is what I tell my students today, like you're you're pausing everything of what the shooter's doing and keeping everything still so that you can take the information that you see through your scope. Yeah, totally. And, and from my perspective in my class, and Mark keeps trying to get me to remove it too, but I won't get rid of it. And I put it in part of the fundamentals. I, at the very end, I go through all the fundamentals. I talk about follow through. Then I say follow through and trigger control work together as one action. And I go through my explanation of that and say, you know, yes. both mentally and physically follow the bullet to the target. Well, I then go into calling your shot. But I yes. explain the difference in what I do with calling your shot and why they kind of want me to reduce it down a little bit is because I talk about where were the sites when the shot broke versus where are the sites. Back in the day when we did sling shooting and iron sights, like when I qualled for the uh, M16A2, it was iron sights and slings. You know, we had no uh, ACOG, no nothing. We still had to do our, our qual. And so... You're, you're doing these positions, a 200-yard standing. It might be, you know, 300-yard, whatever. Well, you're moving under recoil, and you're losing that sight picture. So the coach should say to you, your PMI guy, would say, where were the sights when the shot broke? Well, now, because we have video, because we have recoil management, bipods, rear bags, I say, in today's world, we say, where are the sights when the shot broke? Because you could see it. And I'm trying to get the student to pay attention to the reticle. At least four times in the PowerPoint, I'll say, you know, when breaking the shot, 100% of your attention goes to the reticle and target relationship and hold that, you know. And I'll mention it in the other fundamentals. And then when I'm done, I'll say, 
How many times did I say 100% of your attention goes to the radicals? And some guys will go three times. Another guy goes four times. I'm going, does that make it important? You know, that kind of deal. But the, the how I end that segment of my class is in that calling your shot. And I tell them, put them in the presence of mind. Where are the sites? And I show a little bit of video of my, my scope not moving, like recoil management with the AI and the whole thing. And it's like, the scope barely moves an eighth of an inch. I'm like, you could see through that if you tell your brain and your mind, keep looking. And so, yes. to, you know, that's kind of a key point that I think you're, you're hitting on as well, that, that trying to get that student into the moment of the shot and then not disengaging. You know, that's where I talk about time and the start button, like you just mentioned, where they say, well, the bullets already left the bore, but there's still time there. There's still, you know, you're turning the machine on when you press the trigger. You're not, you know, turning it off. You're turning it on and you can't disengage from the shot while the shot's still happening. You know, it doesn't end until it hits the target and you see that. So you're turning that machine on and the process continues all the way until the bullet stops moving. Oh, oh yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page with that. And, and you know, I, I, I think that not too many shooters, you know, prior to taking an actual uh, professional class are cognizant of recoil management, right? Yeah, um, and I get it, you know, the bigger boards, it's the harder it is to recoil, but you can still manage it. You know what I mean? It's yep. just, it's, it's going to suck, right? And it's going to hurt but you can still manage the recoil of, you know, um, the other day I shot a seven, a seven pound, three seventy five Ruger from the prone Wow, yeah. It, to, to get, to get Aaron's uh, rifle ready for Africa. And I just wanted to shoot it. Um, and, and you know, I, I came, you know, at a hundred yards, I came slightly above the target. Uh, but you know, I was still able to, you know, capture it on film and still, you know, show as long as you apply proper body mechanics, follow through and stuff like that, you know, you could, I mean, you can handle a light recoiling or a light rifle with a big caliber, you know. Um, and, you know, going back to what you said with, you know, with your reticle coming back on target, I, you know, I, I tell my students sometimes that I have to move my reticle out of the way, right, uh, during some shots, especially in the prone, because I come right back on target. Yep, yep. It's like I move my reticle out of the way so that I can see if I miss for wind where it lands, right? Because at that point, if I'm right back on target, now I've got, you know, my windage lines out in the way or whatever the case is um, for those, for those, uh, you I know, do that. Any, yeah. Anytime I'm forced to shoot a Horus, I move it out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, but yeah, totally. So, no, that's good stuff. No, for <laughs> the sure. Funny, that, that's when going back in time again, with rifles only. That's why I liked when Jacob was on camera. Cause we did do a demo even back in like 2009, he broke out yeah. his dad's elephant gun to do recoil management. And I so don't want to shoot an elephant gun. <laughs> and, um, so he would do it and he did it with like, it was either a three, seven, five or a four sixteen or some crazy ass elephant gun. And we did a video on recoil management with that guy off of shooting sticks. And, and it, you know, of course you do like two or three takes with the damn thing. So you're, you're shooting four, six shots. And, uh, man, those things are big and nasty to shoot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, know? you know? But that's but, what the guys need. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know, and, and that's one thing with an instructor that I've learned. It's like, hey, demonstration is, is super important, right? It's, it's showing that you not only 
telling them, Hey, this is do this, do that. It was like, Hey, I'm going to do this so that you can see that it's capable. Right. Um, you know, but at the same time, I'm giving them a realistic expectation in the sense that, you know, your, your brain is trying to occupy all these things all at the same time, you know, trigger control, recoil management, stuff like that. Right. As you start to dry fire with, with dry fire, good training and, and good, I mean, good, a good foundation essentially with good instruction, right. You start to knock off what brain is starting to occupy because now everything starts to become muscle memory. You know what I mean? Yep. So, you know, pro shooters like, uh, like Jake Bibber, Nick Adarzi and stuff like that. The reason why they're so good is, you know, not only are they able to apply the fundamentals, you know, uh, at, at, you know, quickly, but now their brain is really occupied, right. Trying to figure out what that wind is doing. And that's what separates the top shooters from, you know, let's say like top 10 versus the top 20 is now their brain is focusing on what that wind is doing because I mean, they've perfected that trigger press, a thousand a million times yeah you know they don't I mean? think about any of that nope nope they're strictly thinking about okay is the wind the exact same as when it was when i was getting or standing back there right watching you know two or three shooters in front of me so no that's that's good stuff yeah i know we went, kind of went off uh, on a tangent on the instructor but that that's good no because this is <laughs> this is a great discussion and it, you know like the, uh, the the best guys on the first day even though they, they had kind of inferior equipment-wise, where the Army guys that were there, they were all just wind. You know what I mean? When they got up to the line and, we, and they had wind, they were late in the afternoon on, on Saturday. The winds were there, and, and they totally had to hold between 1.2 and 1.5 with their 308s. And, um, you know, they were just worried about the wind, getting everybody on the same page with the wind call. And they actually had a really good scores on that, on that stage. And I think they managed it because they knew there was wind out there. They put their focus on the wind where I saw a lot of the other guys who, who may not have been top PRS competitors or NRL or whatever, but they guys who had been to matches before and they were just like the win for them. And they talked about it was an afterthought. It was like, you know, hey, let's do this. Hey, let's do that. Hey, let's put your tripod here. I'm going to shoot this and I'm going to do that. And what dope are you going to use? And oh, by the way, what are we doing for wind? And then, you know, usually their answer was, we're just going to hold the left edge of the plate and see what happens. Because some guys called the wind like directly in line where it worked for some targets that way, but not others. But they were kind of like a few guys dismissed it all because they felt it was coming right over towards that pie. And it's like, there's three targets on three big angles. There's no way the wind is coming behind you for all three. But guys had actually dismissed the wind on that stage, which I thought was pretty strange. But it's just that mentality of letting the caliber and the rifle manage the wind for you versus actually having a wind plan when there's definitely wind. I mean, I had a few Texas from people who listened to the podcast that I mentioned and they were like, Oh, just get a six, five PRC. And I'm like, well, do you think nobody was shooting this match with a six, five PRC? If it was so simple as that being the caliber to win with most people would have used it, but it still required wind. You know, it wasn't a silver bullet to beat the wind in, um, you know, just because you went to a Magnum caliber with a, with a, you know, 153 or something. 
Yeah, I mean the the winners won with a six five forty seven, and Bo and I used six five Creedmoors. I used factory ammo. You know what I mean? It's like it, it's not the the cartridge as as much as the cartridge is nice, right? And I think people are you know now looking again, going chasing that. Oh, what is a you know what is a caliber? That, you right. Know, what caliber is going to push me yeah. over the top? And it's, exactly. it's not, yeah. you know what I mean? What it's, is the no. magic bullet caliber? You know, do I get a six millimeter GT? Do I get a dasher? Do I do this? Do I do that? And it's like, uh, you got to manage all this and understand if you know your round, if you know what your round is going to do at distance and you yep. understand the wind aspect of it, well, then your dope is it's WTF. Like I say to everybody, it's wind trajectory, fundamentals of marksmanship. If you, if you, Dope that wind, and you know there's going to be wind there. And out west, there's almost always wind. Your range, my range, you know, we're not back east at Core or Altus. You know, um, it, it's it's wind uh, for us. Yep. You know, you can go on the east coast and find three miles an hour. Well, for us, it's averaging 13. Yep. You know, so I, I think that's a big difference. But, no, I'm glad you're I'm, I'm mentioning that. And um, just so you know, like, one of the things I saw that I'm going to fix for next year, I think, because this was the first time I ever did an event like that. I think I'm going to do probably, like, if I did six minutes for the teams like we did this year, they would have to deploy everything on the clock because there were a ton of teams that finished with more than a minute left. But for individuals, I'm going to do, Bob, probably four minutes for them. So then they can deploy a tripod on the clock as well and balance that time out for the individual because clearly – Three minutes for an individual was cutting it super tight, and they had to be on their A game to manage that. But the teams had basically, in my estimation, on average, 45 seconds too much time. So to me, to to balance that would be deploy the tripod on the clock and then balance the time for the individual because the individual clearly had to do a lot more work by himself under a similar time constraint with the three minutes. So it was tough. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of the uh, deployment on the clock. I think, like I said, I, I ran it at my match in Monster Lake because I heard it in your podcast about Carl Taylor running it at his match. So, you know, a lot of people give me kudos for, uh, you know, running it at a first PRS event, but I de- it definitely wasn't my idea. You know what I mean? It just kind of stuck. And, it, and, that, and that's what sometimes the community needs. It just someone to do it right, right. and change the, the wave of, 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 of it. So like, you know, for instance, you know, r- right now a, a big thing is big, heavy rifles, right. Mm-hmm. You know, the managed recoil, but guess what? If I threw a match, a meatball match where the targets were huge and I made everything based off of time and that caught on, what do you think the, the precision rifle community would go? Yeah. Back to lighter. Oh Yeah right? Maneuverability and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's some perks about, you know, setting up a lot faster with heavier rifles, but now if I've got five positions, Oh buddy, trust me, you're going to want, you know, maybe something in the 15 to 18 pound, not 25 to 30. Yeah. So I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. But, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, on what you talking about wind. So on, the other side, were you, were you able to check out the other sides when you were setting up targets with the canyon? I, I I've shot canyon. that side before. I shot when I shot with Mary Beth that year. We shot that same side. We skipped like one year we do that side, the other year we didn't. This year we did that side. So I have shot that side before. Yeah. Oh, dude, that was, I mean, 
again, coming from, you know, as the lead instructor for Gunworks, I was talking about hunting scenarios. And, you know, that was the perfect hunting type scenario, shooting across a canyon. And, and out of any kind of shot that you take or that any, anyone will ever arrange, I think the cross canyon shot would be, it's always going to be the hardest, right? Because of what the wind is doing at you in between and at the target or all three different things, right? Totally. Um, to where if it, if it was like just in the open, you know, kind of like at, at your area, you know, it was, it was wide open and you kind of get a general idea of, okay, wind is blowing from behind me or just off to the right, whatever. Um, and then you're just changing your values. But shooting on the other side, as, as you saw, you know, with Mary Beth, like it didn't feel like anything was happening at the shooter because you're contained. Right, you're blocked. Right? You're blocked. And now you're relying strictly on your observation skills of – what's going on in between and that target. And what I saw a lot too was a lot of shooters, especially in my squad, when they're talking about what they were so fixed on that line of sight. So everything that was just in between um, them and the target, they weren't looking at the big picture. Right. Uh, and this is something that I started in, in incorporating is looking at the big picture, understanding how wind flows. Right. So like just di disconnecting yourself from, yeah, that's where the target's at, but like try to find the source of the wind. Yeah, you know where's the I mean? origin? Looking, right, right. It, exactly, and then and then trying to figure out. Okay, as corny as it sounds, if there was a big ass giant that threw a bucket of water over this over this place, how would that wind flow? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And where's where's that wind going? Um, and and I think visually that's helped out a lot of my students. Is is when I disconnect them from just that line of sight of what they whatever they see through their scope. Because I mean that's what I did, right? It was just kind of look. Oh, what's the wind doing? in my line of sight. Right. And, and when I started to see the big picture, my wind calls got, I mean, tenfold better, um, uh, of just seeing where, it, where it's funneling through. And yeah, I, I, I had a phone scope video of a few of my, I mean, it's, it's the coolest videos ever. Cause like, you know, you're literally burning through loopholes mm -hmm. right in, in the, uh, in the, in the, in this, um, phone scope. And, you know, this actually played it uh, today for my wind class. I turned the audio off because you can hear Bo and I talking about wind, but I turned the audio off and it, it's just for like 30 seconds, just the idea of what that wind is doing. And I was like, hey, guys, you're based off your observation. What do you think the wind is doing here? Uh, direction and, and speed. And so, we're you know, we're talking about it. And a lot of them, you know, just because of how shallow it was moving, a lot of them were like, oh, that looks about three to four miles an hour. But uh, Bo and I were actually holding t eight to 10 miles an hour to make connections on that target about like six or 700 yards. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's but, awesome. Cool. I mean, that's one of the best yeah. reasons why I keep coming back to Carl's area. You know, I mean, besides Carl being who he is and, and being a rock star in, in, in this community and stuff, but that area is just so diverse and, and, and it gives you so many different looks and angles and, and it and it throws a little bit of everything at you, you know, in 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 all sides really, because you got a little bit of up the hill going on. I mean, part of that thing too is it, it didn't seem like it, but that first target that's a seven degree angle, and while it's not a lot, you know, that's why you can put that six seventy five on there because you got a seven degree angle. But then you go on the B side where you know in the canyon, and now that angle those short. What are they like 350, 280, somewhere in there? Those yep. little bitty guys that are all in the bush I set up. Yep. Those things are friggin' pain in the neck, but they're a pretty big angle, you know? Um, like yep. uh I guess uh Adam mentioned 
that Nick missed one of those 300-yard targets three times. Yeah, that was that 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 effed up tribe. Like you're just like shooting off the side of a hill at an extreme angle, and it was the very first target uh, due to left. I, my 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 position is so heinous. Uh, I have a video of that. Um, I'll uh, I need to. I still need to get with you on how I can link some of my Facebook videos to uh, or my Instagram videos to your uh, sniper side. I'm I can embed them. I can embed Facebook videos yeah. onto the site sniper um, side. We need to do that. Do like a fill a fill thread and and just put a bunch yeah. of your videos that we can grab and put up there and have a discussion yeah, on them. You know. So what I can do is start just posting videos because that, that. I mean, honestly, if anything. Like I've been around as 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 you have around the U.S. training, shooting competitions, and after shooting, this is my first time in Kettle Falls. After shooting in Kettle Falls, I definitely ranked up to the, my number one shooting venue that I've ever shot at. You know, um, just because like how diverse it was, yep. right? And not only how diverse it was, but how practical it was. It's old school. It goes back to ASC when we shot Allegheny Sniper Challenge in West Virginia. It was very yeah. similar to what Carl has, but, you know, it's just now because Carl's changing it every time. Like, when we were done, we went and tore targets down on Sunday night because he had to move them for that Army class that was coming in there. And so it's not—it's close to the same, but it's not identical where ASC, the targets never moved after they set them up. So once you shot ASC, you've shot ASC. And it's a great venue. It's, it's a good match. It's like a bucket list match. But you only have to do it once where Carl's Kettle Falls stuff, it mixes up and he may repeat certain things, but it's not the same year to year. So you may see it this year. You won't see it next year and you'll see it the year after. But the range or something might be slightly different. The target size might change, you know, but it's it's never the same. I don't think, you know, we've had more than 50 percent of the stages that have been identical to any kind of years prior. So that's always a fun thing to mix it up like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to forward to next year, and you know, I, I think yeah, a couple of the uh, logistics. Um, the, like the first thing, I think the first thing uh, Saturday morning kind of got. Yeah, we lost our rows. I don't know. We we yeah. were, we were short two our rows, and then I guess two others that were there didn't bring their optics. Oh crap! Yeah, so that turned into on the A on the B side. It turned into a mess. We had actually gone hot on the A side and didn't know. I didn't find out until like lunch what happened at the B side. Um, yeah. We went hot an hour before you guys, and that was just because all of our training schedule. Usually, I'd get there like Wednesday, and then you know do Thursday Friday setup with them if they needed anything else. But he had tore everything down because of the military classes, and then um, with everybody's travel. I only had Thursday to help him set up, and I guess what he thought was finished on the B side wasn't, so that delayed you guys. Logistically, yeah, we messed that up the first day, but then, you know, Sunday went really smooth, which is kind of the day to get us out of there anyway. Um, you know, you got to be there overnight, so if you shot till 5.30, who cares? It's, you know, it's not like you're going anywhere. And honestly, you know, I, I don't mind a match that maybe start a little late, especially if the course of fire is worth it, right? It's like... If I've freaking waited till 12 to shoot, let's say, a course of fire that I've probably shot at other different venues, which I've been to. Yeah. It's like, oh, I've seen the same stage, like whatever. Um, but, oh, yeah. I mean, I would have I would have shot all day. I would have waited all day, right, and shot the last three or four hours of, of uh, daylight if I had to just because of how 
diverse that that course of fire was and, and, and yeah and that's what we were talking about is changing the date just so we can open up the timing for us to be a little bit more prepared because we all got jammed yeah yeah um you know one thing that i don't know if you see this i see this a lot in the precision rifle community is uh is you know again because we use tripods i would say about 95 percent of the shooters that own a tripod uh only five, or I mean, out of the 95% or 100% of people that own tripods, I'd say only 5%, 10% of them actually shoot off of it or are trained to shoot off it, right? Yeah. A lot of them really just use it for spotting. Um, but like you and I know uh, the, the practicality of it, um, especially, you know, coming from the sniper program and, you know, the global war on terrorism, stuff like that. I mean, even, I mean, the glo- global war on terrorism didn't, you know, highlight the, the tripod it was we, you guys were shooting off sticks back in the 80s yeah yeah in the yeah. 90s yeah, yeah our, our tent poles and sticks for sure we, yeah, sh- we shot dowel, off all that dowel rods yeah mm-hmm. you know but with it being 2019 we've got tripods but it's like it's like that's a good that's a good skill to have and i tell my hunters all the time like if you don't think uh uh you know a uh shooting off of a like tripod is you know practical like you're not training hard enough. You're not, you're not, you're not yeah. doing it's, yourself. It's a the service. number one tool. If I had to bring just one thing, you know, with it, even if, even beyond a bipod, if I had to bring just one, it would be a tripod. Yeah. Yep. For sure. You know, and I spent all afternoon with a tripod company today, kind of talking with them, a lower cost one that's local to me. And, and I spent four hours with them. I brought my rifles. I brought all the stuff. I, I said, Hey, you know, cause they're, they're, they're a low cost option. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, we got the really right stuff. Yeah. You can get the crux ordinance that was there, but guys don't want to spend 14, $1,500 for tripods, but can we make the existing photo tripods work better versus like the Bushnell you got issued, you know, and these guys were all about it and they understood weight rating. The guy understood like hydraulic leveling bases. And then once he saw what was going on, he had, I mean, the guy had like rooms of everybody else's product. And it was like, he was like, oh, this is a discontinued Gitso leveling base. And they discontinued it because it didn't go 90 degrees. And he's like, you guys don't need 90 degrees, right? And I'm like, no, we don't. Why do we want to roll over 90 degrees with our rifle and have the notch? And he's like, okay, this is like, a hundred pound weight rating of a base with no stem and all this. And then he had this other like crazy ball head that had like a really kind of fat, then wide it out stem and it had a single handle to it. And I don't even remember what company it was. I didn't see the name on it. It wasn't his though. And I'm like, you see this, this would be ideal to shoot off of because the stem is big. It's got a ball and it's got a single tension everything and it moves where we want i said this would be ideal to be married with that and the guy's like yeah no problem man um we'll put this together with this and it tripods are just so damn universal man and there there was stuff out there that he had i'd never seen and and he had it all sitting there on shelves man separated by the type by the uh you know the use the whether it was a base this and, and, he, and he even knew, like, leg angles. He looked at, like, the crux ordinance. He goes, 
that's a 22 degree leg. 27 degrees is optimal. You know, he's kind of coming on this angle when he's at this degree. I'm like, God damn. And, but it's like us. He knows his job like we know ours. And when you yep. get around those people, it's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's always neat to find someone that's that's passionate about their craft as we are about ours. You know what I mean? So, you know, just being able to kind of feed off each other is pretty is, is pretty cool. Yep, yep. No, man, hey, give me some final thoughts. We kind of right crossed into the hour. I don't want to keep you any longer. You've been working all day. I've been cruising around. Get this going. So if you got anything to plug or anything going on, um, yeah, you know, let's um, throw it out there. If you don't mind. Uh, no, absolutely. So, um, Monster Lake uh, or Monster Lake Mayhem hosted by the National Rifle League uh, or hosted by Gunworks through the National Rifle League. Uh, I should be opening up registration this week, this week, so keep an eye out for that. I know you're going to be missing it. You and I talked about that, but we'd definitely love to have you next year. And, uh, you know, that, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, if you want to uh, follow me, uh, you know, on my Instagram, I'll be probably posting up some videos of, of this, uh, this last week's match because I got a great a bunch of content. You know, that's one thing that I didn't want to miss out. Would, you know, right before the stage, I'd set up a camera and, and Bo would set up his camera. So, um, you know, it just makes stuff like this, especially as an instructor, good training tools, right? Looking back. Uh, and to be able to show my students or even just so, show some of my uh, followers. But, no, I appreciate this, uh, Frank. You know, again, thanks for thanks for a great match. I look forward to shooting it next year, at whether uh, I got to find a new partner because Bo might be deployed. So uh, maybe I can get Kalen out to, to shoot with me. But, yeah, it's been uh, it's been great. Yeah, and, and, and I love the stuff you could do with Gunworks. So if guys need the class with you or want to take anything, make sure you jump over to Gunworks. Uh, your long-range podcast is, is awesome over there, too. And, and so definitely, you know, take a look at the, at the gun work side. I, I think you guys are, are probably the best in the business for the crossover of the hunter versus the tactical slash precision rifle run and gun kind of guy, because you, you know how to mix your weight of the rifle with the, you know, the elements that work without going like pencil thin or anything that's kind of crazy, but still keeping it in a manageable place. But I think you guys have the the best crossover product out there, man, for sure. I appreciate that. Thanks, Frank. All righty. Uh, I'll stay on the line real quick. We're going to end this. And, and again, I, thanks a lot for coming on and talking about the match. I think this is going to resonate really well with a lot of people who, who are eager to, you know, step into it, but may, might be a little nervous about it. Yep. Thanks again, Frank. Yep. Cheers, guys.